Welcome to the Seattle Public Library podcasts of author readings and library events. I'm Chris Higashi, Program Manager for the Washington Center for the Book at the Seattle Public Library. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. The Seattle Public Library events podcasts are a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. The podcast you are about to hear was recorded in 2010. Good afternoon. Hello. I'm Chris Higashi, Program Manager of the Washington Center for the Book at the Seattle Public Library. Welcome to the Central Library, and thank you all so much for being here today for this afternoon with Alan Say. I need to first thank our co-presenters, the Elliott Bay Book Company, and also Mr. Say's publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, for making this afternoon possible. Thanks also to the Seattle Times for generous promotional support for library programs. And finally, to the Seattle Public Library Foundation, whose support makes possible so many of our free library programs. Now I'll turn the podium over to Blythe Summers, our children's librarian. Hi, I'm Blythe. I'm one of the children's librarians here at the Central Library. Welcome. Uh, thank you for coming. We're going to listen to Mr. Alan Say talk about his work, and afterwards we'll do the signing. Alan Say was born in Yokohama, Japan in 1937. At age 12, he apprenticed himself to Noro Shinpei, a cartoonist whom he greatly admired. He came to America when he was 16. Before becoming a full-time author and illustrator, Say pursued commercial photography as a career before being encouraged to try book writing and illustrating. In 1989, he earned the Caldecott Honor for illustrations for Diane Snyder's The Boy of the Three-Year Nap, a retelling of a Japanese folktale. He won the Caldecott Award in 1994 for Grandfather's Journey. Grandfather's Journey, as well as Tree of Cranes, Tea with Milk, and The Sign Painter, are among some of the most autobiographical of Say's works. His latest, Erica-san, which he is here to talk about today, tells the story of an American girl whose hopes of reaching old Japan are finally realized. While Say's stories are most often shelved in the children's sections of libraries and bookstores, his works speak to child and adult alike. It's a truly talented author and artist who has the ability to tell stories so individual after reading some of his books, you feel like someone's just shared their private photo album with you. And yet, the stories resonate with themes that connect us to a larger human experience. For this, it is my very great pleasure to introduce Mr. Alan Say. Thank you. I'm overwhelmed. I'm always surprised when I see anybody show up, particularly on a... <laughs> Great Sunday afternoon. Thank you for coming. I'm very happy to be here. I've been here since yesterday. I came on the train for the first time. I had to give a talk at the uh, Asian Museum, uh, Wing Loop Museum yesterday. 
And I said that I was very happy to be there in spite of the fact that it happened to be my first year wedding anniversary. But it's my fourth, I might add. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm here today and I'm going to talk about Erika-san, which I wasn't even thinking about when I was asked to do this several months ago, because the story Erika-san, although it came out a year ago, January, it has receded into my past so far that it's completely out of my life. And I was going to talk about my new book, which will be coming out in September, called The Boy in the Garden. But that book has also gone out of my life uh, before its publication because I'm working on something else right now, which I think is the most complicated, uh, most challenging work to date. And it will be, in fact, for another publisher, Scholastic. And this one will be called A Scrack Scrapbook. And it's supposed to come out next year, 2011, probably in the fall, possibly in the spring. I was asked by them, by that I mean Scholastic, to consider making something like a graphic novel, which is a term that I, I don't like very much. They're all comic books to me. But anyhow, I was asked to consider making something like that of The Inkkeeper's Apprentice, which is the only pictureless book that I've written. Uh, it's a, an autobiography. It's my apprenticeship to my great mentor, Noro Shinpei. But anyhow, I will share some photos of the making of Erika-san and some other extraneous pictures. This, photo, this photograph was shot in the spring, in April, latter part of April in 1950. And I'm the young juvenile delinquent on the left. Uh, shy of four months, shy four months of being 13. I had just become, I had just barged into Noro Shinpei, who stands on the right. He was a beautiful man, who, by the way, was only 37 at the time. I thought he was a very, very, I thought I was going to meet a very old man because he was so famous. And Tokida in the center, uh, he was shorter than me, but for the photograph, he, one, he took his glasses off, and he is standing on a rock. <laughs> this was shot, I went back to Japan to a beautiful place called Yugawara, which at the foothills of Mount Fuji, where my mentor was living at the time, aged 85, and that was, turned out to be my last homage. I had a, uh, a very difficult time trying to get back to Japan. My flight had been canceled. This was right after 9-11. Anyhow, I was able to uh, go and say goodbye to him. And uh, shortly thereafter, I think perhaps a year later, Home of the Brave was published, for which my publisher, uh, Hub Mifflin, printed two posters, both of which I rolled up and I sent them to his daughter, Chiyoko-san, who rushed them over to the nursing home where the master was staying and unrolled them. And he was in a wheelchair at this time. And he rolled over and he caressed the, he instantly recognized who had done them. And he caressed the image and said to his own daughter, the Kiyoi, which is what he called me, 
mispronunciation of say, and the name stuck, and forever, for the rest of my life, I was called Kyoi. He said to her, Kyoi was the treasure of my life. The tradition carrier is what he meant, I think. Uh, this was photographed um, perhaps three years ago with the publication of Kamishi by Man. I went to Japan and gave a talk. Uh, there's a huge revival of Kamishibai going on in Japan, which I, did, I wasn't aware of. And the lady in black in the center with the uh, necklace is Chieko-san. That's, uh, in fact, they're both Noro, my master's daughters. And prior to this occasion, I had seen them only once, when they were perhaps two and five. And one of whom I thought was a boy. <laughs> and that's the way they appear in The Innkeeper's Apprentice. Uh, and the lovely woman on, on the left is Chieko-san's daughter, in other words, my master's granddaughter. And we had spaghetti in Shibuya, where I went to school as a, a long time ago. And it was very good, by the way, probably better than most Italian food I've had in this country. If you can't find it in Tokyo, it probably does not exist. Uh, this is this is my workroom. Uh, it doesn't look anything like this right now. This this was in a fairly clean stage. Uh, there I am. I was working on Kamishibai Man. If you're familiar with that book, I do all the art first, and I got to a place where I cannot finish a piece of work anymore. I can work on it forever. So I give myself, let's say, two weeks, and I draw them and paint them in sequence. And I usually have no idea where I'm going or what the revelation of the story is. I know the beginning and sometimes the ending. What goes in the middle, in between, I have usually have no idea. And it's an agony every day. And then at, at the end of two weeks, I go to the next frame until I have all the pictures. Usually, my, my picture books, or what well, picture books are 32 pages usually. So it's half and half. In other words, 15 illustrations. When I have everything on paper, then I go back to the first frame and start finishing them up. Uh, this was when uh, the man seated on the right is Sam Morse, a, a noted Asian art historian, uh, professor of Asian art history at Amherst. And he came out from uh, Massachusetts and spent three days with me choosing the pieces for my retrospective at the uh, Eric Carle Museum, uh, which happened in, uh, whenever it was, several years ago when I turned 70. It was supposed to be my 70th birthday bash. It wasn't my idea, believe me. Uh, I was shocked. And, and, uh, the curator said, we want to do a 70th anniversary show, retrospective of your stuff. I said, what are you talking about? I had two more years to go at the time. 70 was unimaginable, and here I am. This is that very well-known photograph, famous photograph taken by Dorothy Erlang, uh, shortly after the Pearl Harbor bombing. And this is the Mochida family, as they are just taken just prior to their being put on a bus and um, sent out to, I think it was Manzanar, the internment camp. And these two girls on the left-hand side, left-hand, had haunted me all my adult life. 
and I wanted to I wanted to do something about it. But while then I started working on Home of the Brave. Anyhow, recently I heard this most interesting story about this photograph that there was yet another girl, another sister in the family who stood slightly away from the rest of the, the members and facing the camera and she was excised, taken off the picture. I don't know whose decision this was, whether it was Dorothea Lang or her photo editor or the publisher of the paper. The girl was smiling at the camera and they felt wherever they were, that that would have lessened the impact of the image. Truth in photography, yes. Okay, so I simply stole these two girls and put them into Home of the Brave and made a story out of, of them. And on the publication of the book, which was launched at the Japanese American National Museum in LA, to which the real people came. That's Hiroko-san on the left, who is that little girl, and that's Miki-san on the right. Three generations of the Mochida family came for the event, and it was one of the most moving experiences of my adult life. What was astounding to me was that they all considered themselves to be normal Americans. There was no rancor, resentment, bitterness except for one youngster who came up to me and whispered later that if the Mochibla family still had their property of the land in Hayward Valley or wherever it was in Central California, this is five years ago, and he said, today it will be worth $1.4 billion. Well, uh, when I start working on a book, I, I go through a doodling stage, what I call a doodling stage. I have no idea in my head. I, I think I'm trying to tap my dream world, the, un, the unconscious world, and I go through a lot of sketchbooks and just start drawing uh, very quickly. And then I feel that perhaps something is emerging, and I transfer that onto a stretched piece of watercolor paper that you saw in my workroom. I, I have about 15 of these boards, the drafting boards, onto which I size watercolor paper. And then I start painting them. And sometimes uh, words will pop in my head and I scribble them and they're all over the house. And of course, when the time comes, I can never find them. And this is the, the finished, or the stage at which I quit painting. I'll put it that way. And uh, until recently, until a year ago, I have been a, uh, a very well-adjusted bachelor for 20 years, uh, rearing my daughter in San Francisco. And then I moved to Portland, Oregon. And of course, the most successful model is the guy I live with. So through the, the, the miracle of digital photography, I do this. Uh, here I'm masquerading as the Kamishibai man. And here, here he is again. If you know that book, you recognize this pose. Um, for the uh, retrospective at the Eric Carl Museum, the curator asked me to show some of my oil paintings. So I did one of my master, and I debated for a long time to whether to leave that cigarette in there or not. But 
Noro Shinpei was never seen without one. <laughs> and it would have been, well, I left it in. But in the, um, a scrapbook, the, the book that I'm working on now, the graphic novel, will have my doodlings, drawings, paintings, photographs. Uh, when I was two years old, being held by my mother, and postcards, photographs of my master at work, and even his work, which I was able to dig up uh, thanks to uh, his daughter. Uh, this is an oil painting of Kitovil. I had to have a self-portrait, so I, my daughter took this photograph and I just simply copied it in oil. It's, and this was another painting. It's three feet by three feet. It's, it's a copy of a black and white photograph that I had taken uh, in the 60s when I first came out of the army and decided to become a photographer. And I was shooting uh, children's portraits for $25 a shot. And that, this was one of them. This young woman's name is Ursula McCormick. And I met her in a sushi restaurant in Portland. Up until I met her, I had been seriously thinking about doing a story about an American boy living in Tokyo who becomes so Japanized that his Japanese friends have to learn about their own culture and language and history from this American boy. And this is based on a true person that I, I met, an astounding boy. And I was collecting all sorts of information, data, I, the research stuff on her. Then I'm at the sushi place and I was entertaining my uh, shiatsu master, Masur, probably the best shiatsu guy in this country. Anyhow, this young woman came and sat next to us and proceeded to talk to the Itamae, that is a sushi maker, in this wonderful broken Japanese, which was completely understandable. And we got very interested and we accosted her. And the story she gave us was this, that she had just come back from a beautiful island in southern part of Japan called Amakusa. A literal translation of the two characters means heavenly grass. It's an historic island in that that's where Christianity was first introduced to Japan by the Portuguese padres, I think. And there ensued just a series of bloody, bloody battles. It's, it's a very famous place. Anyhow, she had gone there to teach English, and she was there for two and a half years, during which time she essentially went native. And I said, wow, I have my story there. I'm going to write a story about her. So I wrote my little name on a piece of paper, and I gave it to her, and I said, please go home and Google me or whatever you want to do, because I didn't, I didn't want her to think that I was a child molester. <laughs> And I said, I'll be here next week, same time. Same time next week, she came. And she said, I said to her, look, I'm thinking about this book. What if I sent you back to Amaksa next spring? She was attending some college there, so I knew during the spring break, how, how, would you like, how would you like to go back there for a week and you be my guide and introduce me to all the people that you met there, worked with, etc." She was completely agreeable, incredible, what a sport. And so this is what happened, except I told her one thing. 
I said, I'm going to have to change your name. First of all, I don't like Ursula. <laughs> but more important, uh, Japanese cannot pronounce Ursula. <laughs> it comes out as Asara-san, and this is what they call her, and I can't put that in my book. So this is how I came up with Erika-san. And so we went. First, I had to go to Tokyo, and then to Kobe, and to Kyoto, to these international schools, and gave talks, and I had to raise money, which I did. And I did that for a week, and a week later, I went to Amaksa and met up with new Erika-san. It's, it's a, every time I go to Japan, I'm disappointed because it's become more modern and more concrete and more neon signs and all this. But when I went back there, I felt for the first time in, in my adult life that perhaps I've come home. It was that kind of place until I saw uh, Colonel Chicken and McDonald's. And <laughs> so I'll show you some pictures of Amaksa. It's one of the little fishing villages. And this is at the end of the island. Uh, if you know Miyamoto Musashi, the most famous swordsman in Japanese history, and he had this celebrated dueling with Sasaki Kojiro on this little island. And this is the site that is, the beach that is used for TV series, apparently. Uh, Amakusa, having been the place where Christianity was first introduced, has many churches which are still attended today, to this day. And right next to them are Buddhist temples. So the place is full of churches, Buddhist temples, and cemeteries. It's an interesting place. Uh, if you know, if you've seen the book Erika-san already, uh, this is Kamome, uh, the little restaurant where Ursula had eaten practically every day, and that the couple who owned the place pretty much adopted her. And I, while I was there for a week, I, I went there every day, of course. Lunch and dinner. And this is exactly the restaurant. This is how I depict the place in the book. And in fact, I call it by the real name, Kamome. And, and I didn't tell this to the Kanazawas, the owners. And when the book came, came out a year ago, and prior to that, 88, in October of 88, I fully intended to go back there and hand deliver the book to the Kanazawas. And I was able, unable to do that because I got sick. And apparently, they, uh, that particular scene in the book is framed in their store today. Okay, the rest is the book itself, which I will not go through. Since there's so many of you, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time signing your books, and uh, I should quit now, but I'd be very happy to answer questions. Yes, way back there. Oh, okay, this is going to be in a scrapbook. What happened was Tokida, the boy, the, the real juvenile delinquent, the middle boy, <laughs> he was three years older than me, and he... Uh, ran away from home at the age of 16 and walked for 16 days to Tokyo, to, from Osaka to Tokyo. It's about 300 miles. 
And he hid during the day, and he walked during the night, and he reached Tokyo, and he barged into a large newspaper company and walked into the newsroom, and he, he just made this announcement, I want to be a cartoonist. Anyhow, to make a long story even longer, the following morning, while they were still grilling this disheveled, dirty, smelling boy, this man came into the office and said, I will teach you if you like. And that was Noro Shinpei. And I read that paper, I mean news. How I came to read that news is a story in itself. Just a, you'll just have to wait two years to buy the book. <laughs> but the most extraordinary thing was that in those days in Japan, they published the names and addresses of those who were written about. So I had Noro Shinpei's address. And this is how I traced him doing my... Well, okay, to make a long story even longer, I was living at the time with my maternal grandmother, whom I did not like, and, and the feeling was quite mutual. And uh, it, it became rather desperate, and she said to me one day, Koichi, I'll make a deal with you. If you study very hard, and if you can get into Aoyama Gakuin, that is a middle school in Tokyo, private school, almost impossible to get into, she said, I will let you live alone. And she knew I was a very bad student. By this time, I had gone to five or six grade schools. Because of the war, we were constantly moving. And I made sure that she meant what she said, and I studied. I gave up drawing, and I studied for the first time. And lo and behold, I discovered that I had good memory. So I memorized everything that I read, numbers, dates, years, locations, formulas, whatnot. And I went and took the test, and by golly, I passed, which nobody could believe. I started living alone when I was 12 years old in a, in a one-room apartment. This is where the Ink Keeper's Apprentice begins, by the way, if you know that. The story, the narrator is 13 years old when the story starts. That's because my editor at the time, at Harper and Rowe, didn't think that anybody was, was going to believe that a 12-year-old kid was doing all this stuff on his own. But I did. I was provided with lots of money. And one of the thing, lines that I write, I just wrote this, by the way, in a scrapbook. I was free in a very safe city talking about Tokyo. This is unimaginable in this country today, or never was, as a matter of fact. To give you another story, 1982, after about 20 years of not returning to Japan at all, I had given up on modern Japan. 82, I went back there, and I was in a hotel in Shibuya. If you know Tokyo, that's the heart of Tokyo. And I was a few blocks away from the school that I had attended, Aoyama Gakuin. By the way, Lois Lowry lived in a place called the Washington Heights, which was a compound, an enclave for the American military personnel. She's six, years, six months older than I am. She calls me the mere young one. She was there because her father was General MacArthur's personal dentist. The plot thickens. And so, anyhow, where was I? Oh, so I'm living alone. Oh, I'm back to Japan in 82. I'm on seventh floor of this hotel looking down. Just before 8 o'clock, on the street, I saw a group of young children in their little 
school camps. There were probably kindergartners, three or four of them, in the heart of Tokyo, going off to wherever they were going, school, kindergarten, unaccompanied. I almost wept. Here, 82, my daughter who's sitting here right now, she's 29, she was two at the time. I have been scared to death ever since her birth in San Francisco and here in Japan. Okay, so I just want you to know, 12 years old, I was completely safe in Tokyo, living alone. I think that's what civilized society means and should be. But Japan isn't like that anymore. Okay, questions? Yes. I, I, I went to the School of Architecture. It's called the School of Environmental Design at Berkeley, Cal University of California. I went there to avoid the draft, and I took architecture because it was a five-year program, and I thought I was safe. <laughs> and I never took an English course because I flunked subject A, bonehead English. And it's the only English course I've ever taken. And so imagine my embarrassment when I'm called an author. <laughs> and here I am. I freely admit that I have a, a, a very good art education. Anything else? Yes. No. But I did have a model. I went to a childcare center in Chinatown in San Francisco, and I got permission to spend I, two days taking pictures. And I zeroed into that girl for whom a filmmaker would kill. Just incredible. And I never found out her name. I don't know who, I, to this day, I don't know who she is. Did you all hear the question? It was, it was the character Emma in one of Alan's books based on someone real. My characters are usually composite. Uh, I take, I, I think this is what writers do. You know, you take some interesting aspect of one person and marry that with another and so forth. Yes, the gentleman. Uh, I, I went through what I call the French Foreign Legion period. I was 16 years old and I did not speak English. I couldn't because both of my, in spite of the fact that both of my parents spoke they were bilingual. However, it was high crime during the wartime to do that. Furthermore, my father was a, a Korean orphan. He, he was born in North Korea, Korea, and he was adopted by an English family, and he was reared in Shanghai, and he spoke six languages. So the story about tea with milk is fairly accurate to a certain point. He didn't look anything like that. I don't have the heart to depict my true father in anything to this day. Anyhow, he, um, so what was I talking about? Oh, I was 16 and I was thrown into a military academy in Glendora, California. And it was sink or swim. Had I been coddled by bilingual education, I never would have learned, I think. I'm convinced of it, in fact. I was on permanent KP, and I would pronounce the, the word mother perhaps 2,000 times until I could say it. You know, Japanese cannot pronounce TH sound. Mother comes out as either maza or mada. And I was determined to, to teach myself. And then I would look at my, in the mirror and watch my mouth as I pronounced each word. I told this to my sister, and she used the same method, and she thanked me the other day, <laughs> 40 years later. 
Yeah. Anything else? Yes. I get this question. He's asking about advice for young artists. You know, it's it's um it's it's the whole thing is a question of passion. Right? It's if you feel passionate about it, you will do it no matter what. That's all I can tell you. But I feel for the youngsters today, it's all, everything is on the computer. I look at the New Yorker magazine, I pick up a New Yorker magazine, it's all computerized art, and it seems utterly soulless to me. Anyhow, I'm getting off the subject again, yes. Well, I don't think I belong anywhere, really. Somebody sent me a series of questions for a newspaper here. Where is your... And I said, since the age of four, I haven't really felt at home anywhere. That was the first time I moved. Well, my family moved to another house, and I, and I moved a lot. I'm not answering your question, but I, yeah, I, I just, well, wherever I can do my work is home. But I will, this is not really an answer. I have a, a dear friend who is half Chinese, half Japanese, who lives in L.A., and L.A. is her home. Now, L.A. is a place that I've always hated. But she feels completely at home in L.A. And I marvel at this person, and I've always marveled at, at any non-white person ever feeling at home in this country. I just couldn't imagine it. That's a terrible thing to say, probably. Yes. Well, it's politics, you know. Why are you changing publishers? I, 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 I was with Hood I, I Mifflin because of a very, very great editor there, Walter Lorraine, who essentially, he finally admitted this, by the way, he stole me from somebody else. And he was vehemently, I mean, he was very protective of his, okay, he nurtured the likes of Chris Van Allsburg, uh, David McCauley, Lois Lowry, Alan Say. Oh, he didn't nurture me. He, I was full-blown. He just stole me. Okay, Walter retired a couple of years ago. And upon his retirement, they discovered cancer in his mouth. And uh, it's, it's a terrible story. He's alive. He's well. But he has become, well... I will tell you this, I had never had a literary or an Asian in my career because it would have complicated my relationship with this editor. He just did everything. I didn't even know who the art director was at Houghton. I would say to Walter, look, I want this and this and this done, and you just do it. It was, he was autonomous. So when he retired, I hired an agent who brokered a two-book contract for me with Scholastic. And I thought I would be protected, shielded from all this politicking. And it didn't turn out to be so. They're very upset with me. Everybody at Houghton has upset me, upset with me. You know, I betrayed them and all this. And so I keep telling them, you know, well, life is about deception and betrayal. <laughs> fishermen know this very well, fly fishermen. Let's do two more questions. Okay. I had better start signing. Okay, two more questions. Yes. Way up there. I can't hear. How long does it take to write one oh, of your books? I, I'm very, very slow. Uh, usually one to two years. Grandfather surely took me two years. I wrote the text in one afternoon. Then I spent two years painting. I mean every day, two years. 
Kamishibai Man, I did in a record time, I think eight months, because I was angry at Walter. <laughs> yeah. But usually in a half. Yes. Last question. Yes. We had a very difficult relationship. The question was about depicting his father in his books. Okay, thank you very much. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.